The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you um, to open it to Acts, uh, two separate texts this morning. Acts uh, chapter 17 and then Romans chapter 7. One of my favorite things about, um, about the week is small group. And Ann and I are actually in two different uh, small groups. Or I'm in two different small groups. She's in one. Um, Jen Dillinger, Dillinger and I lead a group on Wednesday nights called How Not to Read the Bible, um, where we're reading and talking about um, what are some appropriate ways for us to learn from Scripture. And then Ann and I host a study on the book of Romans um, each Thursday night in our home. And one of my favorite things about, about small group is the way that the people in our small group challenge and encourage me to grow in my own relationship with God. It is not a one-way street in the small groups um, that I'm a part of. And I just, love learning from, um, I just love learning from people within our church body. They also help me write my sermons on Sunday. You probably picked up on that. And I love it when that happens, when I hear something that's like, man, that'll just be so good. And last Sunday, or last Thursday night, as we read through Romans chapter 6 together as a small group, one of the, one of the people in our small group asked a series of questions. She said, so why, why did the church at Rome listen to Paul? Why did they listen to Paul? What gave Paul the authority he would need to be able to write these words for the church at Rome to accept what he was saying? How did they know Paul well enough to trust him? So we started kind of having that immediate conversation about Paul and and his relationship with the church at Rome. And then we expanded those questions to us. How do we determine truth claims? How do we determine who has authority in our own lives? How do we determine whether I should listen to voice A or I should listen to voice B? How do we make these decisions? On what basis do we make these determinations? I wonder, how do you make those determinations? How do you decide? Do we just listen to people because we agree with them? Do we just listen to people because they agree with us? They agree with our ideas. They agree with our own ideals. I would submit to you that there's, that there's actually another standard. And it's found in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 12. That very night... The believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. See, there's something that's interesting going on in this text. When, when, the, when the people in Berea heard what Paul was saying, 
they turned to the Scripture. They turned to, this would have meant the Old Testament. And they compared what they were hearing Paul and Silas talking about. They compared it to what the Scriptures had to say. And what's really interesting about that is it describes them as open-minded. See, listening and comparing what people say to the Scripture is actually being open-minded. It's a comparison. Well, compared with what? If we go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 17 and just read the first few verses. Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must rise, must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. What I find that's so interesting about this is Paul's preaching the exact same message in both places. Some of the people didn't compare what Paul had to say to the scriptures, and that led to a riot. When the people in Berea compared it to the scriptures, it led to people actually encountering God. And I find this is just so fascinating for us as we consider how do we determine what's true? How do we decide what voices to listen to? This past week, there's a pastor that I I pay attention to. He was quoted as saying this. His name is Mark Dever. He said this. He said, if you're going to a bad church, do you realize it's partly your fault? He was talking about 2 Timothy, beginning at verse 3, 4, verse 3. For a time's coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth and chase after myths. Do you see what our responsibility is as believers, as followers of Christ? See, your your job as a, as a person who, who participates in any church, but especially here at Westway Christian Church. Your job, when we ask you on Sunday mornings to, to open your Bible, like we want you to do that. We want you to follow along with us. And this led to a big lengthy conversation on Thursday night about how, um, how you have a role and a responsibility within the church to care or to compare what scripture says to what you hear from the front. I love what my wife said. She said, I'm married to John and I follow along in the Bible when he teaches it. See, this is our responsibility. This is, this is your responsibility. And we want you to take that seriously because it says like a time will come, a time is coming, like we're there. 
Do we recognize that, that people no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching? But again, what's the standard? What's the measurement? Well, what the Bible has to say. So you have a responsibility. And even yesterday, I was at Gerald Perriott's funeral at, um, at Gearing Central. And every single time, one of those pastors who I trust read the Bible. You know what I did? I wasn't on Facebook. I was following along the scripture. Because we want to compare what people say to what the Bible has to say. And I say all that as we get ready to read through Romans chapter 7. It's just so fascinating. We reread Romans 6 this past Thursday, and this is what we talked about last week. And several people said the exact same thing. Like, even though we are dead to sin, I still feel like I'm not dead to sin. Can anyone relate to that? Like, the Bible is telling me this thing, that I'm dead to sin, but it doesn't feel like it. There are times in my life where, where it still feels like it has power over my life. It still feels like it has control over my life. It still feels like it has influence over my life. And just what was so fascinating about that was, was it was completely unprovoked that they asked that question in small group. It just, it just sort of organically happened. And we talked about this last Sunday, but um, I love Romans because Paul seems to know exactly what it is that we're going to think next. Number one, that's because the Bible is God-breathed. That's because the ultimate author of the text is God. And he was informing and communicating to Paul what he needed to write. But number two, it's because Paul's writing his letter in a way that's meant to guide our thinking. See, Paul has, Paul has an end game in mind. By the time Romans ends, he, he wants the people to know that they have been included in God's mission for a purpose. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to, as we said, this is like the longest letter of antiquity that we, that we have a copy of, that we have manuscript evidence for. So when it seems like Paul's taking forever to get to his point, it's because he's, he's guiding us and he's leading us and he's directing us to get somewhere. He knows what we're going to think because he's taking us to that spot. And I just loved it. So the question is, if I'm dead to sin, then why, why do I still sin? What's going on here? I want to remind you as we get ready to read Romans chapter 7, part of it, I want to remind you that we've said that there are, there are three different audiences that Paul is writing to in his letter to the Roman church. Somebody, can you shout out one? Let's see, how, let's see if you've been paying attention. What's one of the audiences that Paul has been talking to in this letter? The Jews. Who's the second audience? Gentiles. And the third audience? The whole church. Right? So he's, he's going he's gonna to organize his letter speaking to one of those main audiences. And I'm going to read the very first verse from chapter 1. And then we're really going to see if you pay attention. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? Who's Paul talking to here? The Jews. Why? Because the law is for them. The law is for them. 
For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he's alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ, and now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we've been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. Remember what Paul says in chapter six, you're dead to the power of the law because you died with Christ and have been raised to new life with him. See, because Paul is talking to the Jews, he's going to use a metaphor that they can understand. Just like he did with slavery at the end of chapter 6, using a metaphor to explain it. And as we read this text last week in our Monday pastor review, I couldn't help but notice, as we were reading through these first six verses, that, that the husband dies, right? And then something really strange kind of happens. If we, if we think about that a little bit, what happens when the husband comes back to life? What happens when the husband comes back to life? Because in this metaphor, Jesus dies and the law dies. But Jesus has come back to life. So then something obviously would change in the relationship, right? Something would change in the relationship. And what Paul tells them, and this is what changes, is they're not bound by the letter of the law in the way they were before Christ. See, the law still has a purpose. The law still has a function. And this is looking ahead to what Paul is going to say next. And that's why I love Romans so much. Because like we start to, it, as we read through, just more questions come up. And we have more and more curiosity stirred in our hearts and our souls. And we start to answer this question. And like Paul's, Paul's got it under control. He says, instead of serving God through keeping the law, you'll serve him by living according to the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? How do we serve God by living according to the spirit? What do we do with the law? Because now we're tempted to say, well, then the law is bad, right? Because it's dead. I don't have to follow it anymore. I don't have to obey it anymore. But again, Jesus has come back to life. So by implication, the law still has some sort of function for us. And it's not bad. These are verses 7 to 13 in Romans chapter 7. Don't you love it? Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting was wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command. 
to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have had that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. And when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which are supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. I think that's the fourth of course not in Romans. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its evil purposes. So what is this, what is this telling us about the law? If it's not bad, it's holy. What does that mean? What do we do with it? How do we, how do we act within the law? What, what do we follow when it comes to the law? I read an article last week that talks about the law does really three kinds of things. Number one, it functions as a mirror. Now, you've heard me talk about this before. God's word is a mirror. It reflects the accurate reality of who I am as a sinner. I read the law and it, it's just telling me the truth, right? With the first time we talked about this, we talked about how the mirror at the gym is a little angled um, from the top, right? To make you look a little bit more like the rock than you actually do. And then when you go to the mirror at the, at the clothing store, it's actually tilted from the bottom to make you a little taller, to make you look a little bit thinner. And then that's why you go home and you put the exact same outfit on and it just looks different. See, the Bible is not an inaccurate mirror. The Bible reveals the reality of who we really are as sinners. But then the Bible also reveals the truth about God. 100% just reveals to us the accurate reality about God. And what we're seeing here in these verses is that Christ is the only solution. See, when the law is a mirror, Dan Kimball says it points us to our full need for Christ because we know who we really aren't. We put that new outfit on and then we go home and we're like, oh, it looks like that. When we put on our own righteousness and we look in the mirror and we see Christ reflected back on us and we're like, oh, I look like that. This is by design. So the law is a mirror. The law also performs a restraining function. There are threats of promises for breaking it, and there are promises of rewards for keeping it. See, this, this restraining function of the law prevents our culture and society from falling into wholesale chaos, death, and destruction. And I know sometimes we, we, we look at the world and, and we see what we perceive to be chaos, death, and destruction, but we really have no idea. See, the law restrains us. The law restrains us in that, like, collectively, culturally, as this society, we've all decided that it's probably not a good idea just to murder whoever we want to. 
Like we've all decided that. We have this societal compact that says, for most of us, the vast majority of humanity that says, that person pulled out in front of me, my next move should not be to kill them. Like we just agreed that we shouldn't do that. So the law restrains us. And, and this is the thing, it, it, it controls our worst impulses. But here's the thing about a restraining law is it, it doesn't save us. We talked about this the first two weeks of this series, Romans 1 and Romans 2. How the law just keeps us under control. This is, this is Romans 2 verses 14 and 15. And if you're in the version app, these are all in there. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. Like even Gentiles, even people who don't know the law, know we probably just shouldn't go around killing people. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for, through, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. Again, this doesn't save them but it constrains their impulses. I love Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25. It says this, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. The law is a function, it has a purpose to restrain us. The law has a purpose, it has a function to reveal to us what sin is. But here's the third thing that the law does for us. It reveals to us the standard of what pleases God. This is, this is crucial. See, the word, the scripture reveals to us the standard for what it means to please God. And this ties into that text from 2 Timothy I read earlier. Again, I'm going I'm to read it. For a time's coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. We... We do not determine what pleases God. We do not determine what pleases God. The standard of what pleases God is not what we think. The standard of what pleases God is not determined by what we feel. The standard of what pleases God is not determined by what we want. Do you see how countercultural this is to us? Do you see how we often approach the Bible? This is what I want. This is what I think. This is what I feel. I've really tried hard over the past couple years to, to strike that phrase, I think. Especially on a Sunday morning. Especially when I'm teaching. Unless it really is my opinion, in which case I will tell you. We talked about this on Thursday. You really shouldn't care what I think about what the Bible has to say. You should care what it says. And frankly, I don't care what you think what, about what the Bible has to say. 
We want to be about what the Bible tells us. We don't want to think this. We want to trust it. We want to know it. See, our standard of what pleases God comes from the Bible. He tells us. This is James 1.25, and this is where that mirror metaphor comes from. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. See, when I get home from from the store and I, I put those clothes on and I stand in front of an actual mirror, like I have to do something about that, right? Because I can't go out looking like that. When we read the Bible and we, and we stand in front of it as a mirror and we see what it says about ourselves and we see what it says about God, we never say the Bible must be wrong. The Bible must be outdated. God, you know, God really doesn't know me. I mean, if God knew my situation, right, we have to adjust ourselves to the Bible. Then, then why not keep the law? If the law does these things, then why not, why not keep the law? Why can't we keep the law? Why can't we follow these things? Why is it not the more Torah, the more life, which is what we talked about last week? This is what the Jews believed. Well, there's a little, there's a little verse, and it's verse 8, and it begins with the phrase, but sin. But Sin. This is why. And, and what we're beginning to see here in Romans chapter 7 is, is sin is starting to be sort of, uh, sort of per- personified. Sin is starting to, to take on a power of its own. Sin does a number of things according to the Bible. It arouses evil within us. It takes advantage of the law to deceive. It uses the commands to kill me. See, not only, not only does, the, does the commands kill me because I can't keep them, right? I can't keep the law. We know that. 613 Old Testament laws, can't keep them. Ten commandments, can't keep them. I know some of you think like you'd score 10% on that test, but you wouldn't. Can't keep Ten Commandments. We've run through this before. Going back to the garden, they had one law, one rule. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. Can't keep one. If they can't keep one, they're sure not going to keep ten. And if they can't keep ten, there is no way they're keeping 613. Right? So because we can't keep the law, we're going to die. And here's the second way. See, we think that we've convinced ourselves that if we can keep the law, we'll earn salvation. We have convinced ourselves that if we just try really, 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 really hard, that we will earn salvation. We have convinced ourselves that as long as I keep the law better than my neighbor, I'm in, I'm saved. 
I can do it because, again, who's, who's our analogy? At least I'm not Hitler, right? That's, that's, our, that's our measuring stick. So the law, sin uses these commands to kill us. And none of these things, I can't keep the commands which leads to death. I've convinced myself I can. These, these things aren't what the Bible says. This is not how we gain salvation. The wages, this is Romans 6.23. The wages, both falling short of the law and trying to live perfectly according to it, the wages of that sin is death. That's what happens. When you try to keep the law and you can't keep it, death. When you try to keep the law, death. Eternal life, this is also Romans 6.23, eternal life is not through my ability to keep the law. Eternal life is not through my ability to convince all of you people that I've got it all together. Eternal life is a free gift of Jesus Christ. That's how we gain eternal life. If you want to know the secret to, to unlocking this whole sin problem we got, if you want to know the secret of the chaos, death, and destruction that's on the level that it's at in our culture and society, the secret is Jesus Christ. The secret is receiving him. See, Scott McKnight has to say this. He says, the law can reveal reality. It can restrain my behavior and reveal to me what pleases God, but it cannot transform me. The law can do lots of things. Except right here. Except fix what is here. Let's read verses 14 through 25. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. This will be the most unpopular thing you will hear all day. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself for what I want to do is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But I know that what I'm doing is wrong. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows me that I agree with the law, that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does that. Do you hear how sin has been personified? He unpacks this. He says, and I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm really not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Describe anyone's last 24 hours. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. 
who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. I love the NIV translation of this. It says something like, oh, what a miserable wretch I am who will save me from this death. Verse 25, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Here's how I summarized those verses. This is what happens when I, the Jew, try to find my righteousness in the law. I don't get more life. I get nothing but death. This is what happens when you, the Gentile, This is what happens when us, the church, when we try to keep the law, we don't get more life. We get death. What we do is we love blaming other people in other situations for our realities, don't we? This person said this. This person did that. This happened. I grew up this way. I grew up that way. This was the neighborhood I was born into. This was the family system and structure I came from. This is what happened in my life. I'm not denying the reality of what you've had to face. You don't know what I've had to face in my life. But here's reality. What Paul says is, the trouble is with me. My sin problem is not a result of anything anyone else has done in my life. It's just not. My problem is me. And I love the way Paul starts this off. He says, I'm all too human, a slave to sin. See, that sounds like Paul is starting to blame like sin, right? Sin has this personification. Sin has this nature. And Paul starts to kind of blame sin. But then he says, the problem's really me. Because our individual sin is a systemic sin. Our individual sin is deeply rooted within us. And the law doesn't just reveal my problem, it reveals our problem. And believe it or not, this is where things start to shift and becomes good news. Doesn't sound like it's good news, but it's starting to shift. Because the reality is, if... If I'm the problem and I can't fix me, how many of you have tried to fix yourself? Right? We've all tried to fix us, right? We've all tried to fix me. If I can eat healthier, if I can go to the gym, if I can stop doing this thing, if I can start doing that thing, right? We all start to try and fix ourselves. And and so often we might fix We might put on a shirt that fits us a little better. We might get get the appropriate size at the store. But, But it doesn't fix what's going on inside of us, does it? See, because all the law can do is reveal that to us. It it doesn't have the ability to transform us. It doesn't have the ability to change us. We might look better, but we're not fixed. And if this is the case that I can't fix my sin and we all can't collectively fix our sin, like we're in trouble. 
we have a problem. Alistair Begg says this, a superficial, superficial view of the human condition results inevitably in attempts to fix the condition in similarly superficial fashion. Right? That's just getting a better looking shirt. Doesn't fix, doesn't solve the problem. This section in Romans 7 is, is, is imminently relatable to us. We can identify with it. We can't fix us. The answer is Jesus. There's this thing in Romans 7.14 that's kind of going on. I'll read it again. So the trouble is not with the law for it's spiritual and good. The trouble is with me for I'm all too human a slave to sin. See, I think sometimes we think if the law were different, we would be better. Right? I love driving analogies because I just think they're so perfect and because I have a problem with my right foot. When we're driving down the road, don't we just inherently know that the speed limit should be about another five or 10 miles per hour higher? Right? I mean, if we were in, like, if we were in charge, we would have the speed limit conveniently set a little higher because we all know what, what a safe speed is. So the problem is not the law. The problem is me. The problem is the fact that I think I know better than whoever set the speed limit. The problem is I think I know better about what safe driving is. The problem is me. The law is good and holy in our transformed minds. I love this. The law is good and holy. And as we've been made into the image of Christ, we're going to talk about Romans chapter 12 here in a few weeks. Talks about being renewed by the transformation of your minds. Our minds are being transformed and we want to do the right thing. That's what Paul's talking about here, right? He says, we know what's right we know what honors God. We've read scripture. We're being transformed by it. We want to do, like, there's this part of us that, that we want to do the right thing. I know the right thing to do. And then Paul says, but, eh. Invariably, I do the wrong thing. Again, this is the sin that's deeply rooted within us. One of the things we talk about is how that that innate desire to do good that all people have, according to Romans chapter 2. Like that's the last vestiges of God's image in us, right? God made every person in his image. So even if I don't have the law telling me it's a, I shouldn't murder someone and I don't murder someone, that's, that's because there's something deep inside of me that's made in God's image. And I don't want to do that. As much as there are last vestiges of God's image in me, even as a person who's being transformed, I think there are last vestiges of the sin that's within me. And it just, just doesn't die. Have you, ever, have you ever pulled weeds out of your yard? I found, this is kind of strange, I've actually found it gets easier to pull weeds out later in the year. Do you know why? Because the roots go so deep and they're so big and it gives you something easier to grab hold of which is not how you should do weeding in your yard, by the way. But sometimes I, I, I pull that weed out 
And I look at the root and I see, see all of the little tentacles coming out of that, coming out of that main root. And I think to myself, man, that's that's the sin that's in my heart. So deeply interwoven into my into my being. And this sounds this sounds like really bad news. It sounds like a person who would say, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I have these roots that are that are so deeply spread into my soul, into my mind. And that's the power of verse 25. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is not in you. The answer is not in me. The answer is not in your spouse. The answer is not in your Christian coworker. The answer is in Jesus Christ. That's the answer. That's the fix. And I promise you, the sooner you wrap your mind around that, the sooner you just, you just give in and submit to that, the process of pulling those roots out is going to be ugly. The process of pulling those roots out is going to hurt. It's going to be painful, but the answer is in Jesus. So what, what do we do? How how do we see this transformation at work in our own lives? I love Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature, there's that personified sin. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. Do you hear the competing Voices And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying the law is not the answer. He's saying when you feel this tension in your life, don't just clean yourself up and be a good boy or girl. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but... The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to this cross, to his cross, and crucified them there. 
Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. I want you to notice one thing, and then I never say we're going to finish, because I know what that means, and you know what that means. One thing to say about this, I want you to compare those two lists in Galatians chapter 5. One is a list of actions. Those are the, those are the results of our sinful nature. One is a list of character traits. Isn't it so interesting that Paul doesn't give as the opposite works of the Spirit with a whole new set of things to do? Do you know why? Because the law doesn't transform us. Because what we would see is a new list of things to do. Oh, I'm not supposed to do these things, so I'm going to do those things. And Paul says that what God is really after is your heart. See, he's after who you are. He's after the kind of life that you are called to live. Christianity is not do's and don'ts, but it's who you are. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the fix. Every single week at Westway Christian Church, we take communion together. This is not a celebration of ourselves because we've done a good work. This is not a celebration of of, of maybe the church that, that has introduced me to the person of Jesus. This is a celebration of who Jesus is. This is a reminder that the only reason I feel this tension in my life of, of wanting to do the right thing and not wanting to do the wrong thing, the only reason I feel any of that is because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has revealed to me that I'm not the fix. You're not the fix. Your pastors are not the fix. Your elders aren't the fix. Your team leaders aren't the fix. Jesus is because he gave us his body so that we would be made whole. Take and eat. He gave us his blood that was poured out for us so that we could be made whole. Take and drink. Will you pray with me? God, I am I'm thankful that I'm not to fix for what's wrong in my life. There are so many days where I can't I can't do basic things. And each and every one of us in this room are often in the same situation. We can't do simple things to make our lives better. We certainly can't fix the sin problem. That so easily entangles us, as your word says. We need you. We need you to fix us. And the good news is you have.
This, this work that your son Jesus did is a completed work. It's a finished work. It's not something that we're waiting to have happen. It's not something that, that we need to clean up ourselves for to be worthy. As we've read over the past month and a half now, we've seen that while we were yet sinners, Christ came to save us. At our worst, Christ came to save us. So we're not waiting for you to make us righteous. We do have to accept it. I pray for those who who are so weary of trying to fix themselves that they would just submit to you. They would trust you. They would come to the conclusion that you are the fixer. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.